are listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an instructor of Old and New Testament and theology at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. If you are a regular listener, I would love for you to give me a positive review and rating on Apple Podcast or Spotify or wherever you get this um, podcast. I'd also love for you to check out my book. I haven't plugged my book in a long time, but I have a book called Your Identity in the Trinity, Discovering God's Grace in the Gospel. You can find that on Amazon. It talks about how we find our true Christian identity in all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and how we can live out our Christianity in a gospel-centered way that's faithful to the Scriptures. I'd love for you to check that out. You can also go to seancole.net to find out all my contact information. You can also find me on Facebook and on Twitter. Well, I want to talk about the issue of grace today. And deadness, as Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. As I interact with provisionists and others who are non-reformed, there seems to be some great differences in how we understand the nature of grace, the nature of deadness, and what Paul's argument is in Ephesians chapter 2. And oftentimes we focus on the term dead and we banter about what that means and what that doesn't mean that we don't look at the entire context of Paul's argument from chapter 2 verses 1 through verse, actually verse 10, but we'll just look at verses, uh, go through verse um, 9. So I want to read that for us, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Let's read that together. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So let's just look at this passage of Scripture and make some observations about it. We'll do some exegetical work. We'll do some grammar. We'll look at Paul's flow of thought, and we'll interact with how non-reformed views maybe try to understand this passage of Scripture. But Paul first says, and you were dead. You were dead. Obviously, this is a past tense reality. He's talking about believers who once were dead. So he's talking about our our condition as an unregenerate, unsaved person, what our condition was before we received grace. And so we were dead in our sins and transgressions. 
Now, that word transgressions is interesting. It means rebellion against God. Not just dead in sins, but dead in transgressions, or some translations say trespasses. We weren't just passive bystanders in a a state of neutrality toward God. We were walking in rebellion. Uh, When the Bible uses the term walk, Paul is very fond of using this this Greek term peripateo, walk. It, It means the totality of our life. You can maybe translate it lifestyle. The, the way that we lived, the, the totality of who we were. So we were dead in our trespasses or transgressions and sins in which you once walked. In other words, this, this state of being dead in rebellion against God was part and parcel of who we were. It doesn't mean that we were inactive It doesn't mean spiritual deadness does not mean inactivity. It means that we were spiritually walking in rebellion against God. We were actively hating God. We were hostile against God. The word walk describes the totality of our life. Calvin says this, Paul does not simply mean that we were in danger of death, but he declares that it was a real and present death under which we walked. A spiritual death is nothing else than the alienation of the soul from God. We are all born dead men, and we live as dead men until we are made partakers of the life of Christ. That's talking about the Roman Catholics or the Papists who undervalue the grace of God say that while we were out of Christ, we were half dead. But we are not at liberty to set aside the words of Paul that while we remain in Adam, we are entirely dead of life, and that regeneration is a new life of the soul by which it rises from the dead. Now, Calvin is arguing against the papists, against the Roman Catholics that were semi-Pelagian, that believed that we were merely sick, or we were half dead, or there was a partial deadness. Because in reality, the Arminians believed that we were dead in sin. You see, this is the the thing that we need to understand, which often causes a lot of confusion. Reformed theology and classic Arminian theology, now obviously Jacobus Arminius was later on after Calvin, but Arminian theology has the same starting place as Reformed theology in the nature of the human soul. Contrary to what you may believe, classical Arminians believe in total inability, in spiritual deadness. They believe that we are spiritually dead and that there has to be some type of grace to overcome that deadness. Now, the Arminian view is that that grace that is needed to overcome spiritual deadness is a prevenient grace given to all people. It's more of an assisting grace that kind of gets you over the hump gives you enough assisting grace, but you ultimately have to use your free will to get yourself all the way into God's good graces. Now, they're not going to say we're saved by works. They're going to say you chose to get saved with that assisting, prevenient grace. The provisionists, they deny total inability. They deny spiritual deadness. They do not see any ontological deadness 
or inability or spiritual hostility on the part of a sinner that makes them unable to come to faith in Christ. What they need is the mere gospel appeal, and once they hear the gospel appeal, that is sufficient in and of itself to enable a positive response. So Calvin here is arguing mainly against the Roman Catholics who believed in like a half-deadness, like spiritually sick, more of a semi-Pelagian view. And then Paul says, secondly, we once walked or followed the course of this world. The world is this present evil system that's under the influence of Satan, where evil runs rampant. First uh, John 2, 15-16 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but it's from the world. So if we followed the course of this world, we were following the desires of the flesh, pride, the desires of the eyes, all of these influences that are from a fallen world, we were enslaved to them. We followed these things. Now, why did we follow the course of this world? Why does Paul say we followed the course of this world? Because it was our nature to do so. Spiritual, notice how Paul starts with spiritual deadness, and then he has these actions that follow. So spiritual deadness is a condition and then he talks about activities. So, so really, Paul gives five descriptions here of an unregenerate person. The first one is spiritual deadness, which is really talking about a condition. And then he gives three activities or three actions or three ways that works itself out. And then the fifth one goes back to the nature again. So he kind of sandwiches the nature or the condition. He sandwiches it on the front end with deadness, on the back end with by nature, children of wrath, and then puts these three activities in the middle. And so why do we follow the course of this world? Why are we so in love with the things of this world? Because it's in our nature to do so, because we're spiritually dead. And then, third, he says, we followed Satan as sons of disobedience. Satan is the, the god of this age, the prince of the power of the air. Sailor, Satan is the, the ruler of this present age. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So not only are we spiritually dead in active rebellion against God, not only are we in love with this world system and enslaved to this world system, but we are also following God. Satan, as sons of disobedience. And notice the word sons there. That's going to come in important later on because a son of disobedience means that that's also your nature. You're, you're, you're by nature a son of disobedience. You're by nature following the, the way of Satan, the prince of the power of the air. So the world has sway over you. Satan has sway over you. And then fourth, Paul says, we lived in the passions of our flesh. He says, verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So we were enslaved to our flesh, which led us to carry out these passions, these lusts, these inordinate desires. 
And so when you think about what Paul is saying here, he gives us the unholy trinity, the unholy trinity, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so our fallen nature of being spiritually dead in active rebellion against God leads us by nature to walk in the course of this world, to walk in the enslavement to Satan, and to be enslaved to the passions of our flesh. And so we do the things of the world. We do the things of Satan. We do the things of the flesh. We are spiritually enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Why? Because we are by nature spiritually dead. Paul would say this in Romans 8, 7 through 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If you are in the flesh, meaning unregenerate, unsaved, you cannot please God. You cannot submit to God. So this, again, talks about an inability, an inability to submit, an inability to please, an inability to do anything spiritually positive toward Christ. Even believing in Christ, trusting in Christ, repenting, these are things that please God. And so in this nature of deadness, spiritual deadness, it's not neutrality, it's active rebellion against God, it's enslavement to the world system, it's enslavement to Satan as a son of disobedience, and it's an enslavement to this flesh, which renders you unable to please God. So Paul gives this, at first, we'll get to the fifth one here in a moment, these four descriptions of an unregenerate person. And oftentimes, the non-reformed view would say that spiritual deadness just means that you're alienated from the life of God. Um, It doesn't mean corpse-like dead. Well, I don't like the term corpse-like dead because Paul actually puts the issue there that we walked in spiritual deadness, in our sins and transgressions. So it's, a, it's, a de- and it's an active deadness. You're dead to the things of God, but you're actively in that spiritual deadness, walking by nature in rebellion against God. You are walking in love with this world system. You are enslaved to Satan as a son of disobedience. You are enslaved to the passions of your flesh and act out on that flesh. But then finally, Paul rounds it out again, like I said, a sandwich. He starts with, You were dead. Then he gives three activities walking according to the world, walking according to Satan, walking according to the flesh. And then he kind of sandwiches it, bookends it with another issue related to our nature. He says, And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were by nature. Now, notice what Paul does not say. Paul does not simply say that we were children of wrath. He says we were by nature children of wrath. It's very important that he puts that term nature in there. Now, if we were just a child of wrath, that could be a state where we somehow chose to get into that position on our own, and we can choose to get out of that on our own. In other words, a semi-Pelagian or a non-reformed person could agree that our personal sin deserves God's wrath. You choose to sin, you receive God's wrath. You choose to have 
that life of sin, you live with the consequences, and the consequences of that choice is God's wrath. And so Paul is very clear to just not say we're just child, children of wrath because a non-reformed person could agree with that. Yeah, you're a child of wrath. Your sin deserves God's wrath, but you chose that sin voluntarily, and you receive the consequences of that. Now, we agree with that. You choose to sin, and you live with the consequences of that sin, but Paul emphasizes that it's by nature. Very important term there. It's our nature. This is our fallen nature that we are born with. Now, this is a very rare word that Paul uses. I think the only other place he uses this is in Galatians 2.15, where he says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. By birth there in Galatians 2.15 is the same word for nature. So you could say there that we are by birth children of wrath. So this is not something that happens later on that we choose to do that incurs God's wrath, but we're born by nature, by birth, already under God's wrath. And you say, well, why are we born under God's wrath? We can understand how we deserve God's wrath by our own personal sin, but how can you be born already under God's wrath when you had not personally done any sin yet? Well, Romans 5.12, we inherited that guilt and sin through Adam. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We all sinned in Adam's sin, and thus we incur the sentence of death, spiritual death, physical death. And you may say, well, okay, we understand that Adam's sin brought death into the world. We can buy that. Most non-reformed people will believe in original sin that is inherited from Adam. I say most. I've, I've, I've run into a few uh, provisionists that, that kind of deny original sin, but most if you're at least a traditional Southern Baptist or you're um, within the mainstream of, of, of conservative evangelicalism, at least within Southern Baptist or, or, or even if it's not Reformed, you hold to original sin inherited from Adam that brings both spiritual and physical death. What non-Reformed people will, will not hold to is inherited guilt, that you are guilty for Adam's sin, even though you had not yet personally committed any sins. Now, let me just make very clear what the Reformed position is. We inherit guilt from Adam that renders us by birth guilty objects of wrath by nature, but we also personally choose to sin because of our nature, and that makes us guilty also. So we're guilty for our own personal sins that we do, plus the sin of Adam. So Romans 5.18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So Adam's trespass led to condemnation for all men. His trespass brings us condemnation. And Paul here says, We are by birth or by nature children of wrath. Notice the children of wrath ties back to sons of disobedience. So in other words, who is our true father in the unregenerate state? Our true father is Satan. We are under the influence of Satan until we are adopted into God's family and made his children. We are by nature children or objects of wrath. And Jesus even says it this way in John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. 
Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Remains on him. Which assumes that if you do not believe in Jesus, that wrath is already abiding on you. That wrath is already there. The only way to escape that wrath is to trust in Christ. And that wrath is on you by nature, by birth, inherited from Adam. And notice that Paul makes it universal. He says, like the rest of mankind, he makes it universal. This is not just for a specific group of people that have chosen this. It is a universal condition. He echoes this in Romans 3.9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Key preposition there, under sin. Under the curse of sin, under the domain of sin, under the bondage of sin, sin by nature. So Paul gives this five-fold description. Starts with the nature. We are spiritually dead. Not neutral or inactive, but in rebellion, inactive rebellion against God. How does that work itself out? We're enslaved to the world. We're enslaved to Satan. We're enslaved to our flesh. And then he rounds that out again with our nature. We are by nature children of wrath. Now, at this point, many will concede that humans are born totally depraved. Yeah, we believe in total depravity. We believe humans are sinful. They're stained with sin. We're born with a corrupt nature, but that does not necessarily prove that sinners are totally unable to respond positively to Christ. In other words, I can agree with you, Calvinists, that Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 teaches total depravity, but it does not teach total inability. You've got to prove to me that Paul is speaking about spiritual inability here. Well, how does Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 actually prove total inability? Well, Paul answers this question with God's sovereign power in making a dead sinner alive. Making a dead sinner alive. If a sinner could respond positively to the mere gospel appeal, then what's the need for being made alive? Why would God need to make a spiritually dead person alive if deadness just means that they were separated from God and they could choose to trust God when the mere gospel appeals are given to them? So when the gospel appeal comes to the unregenerate sinner, they hear the gospel appeal. That gospel in and of itself has the inherent sufficiency to enable response. You respond positively with your libertarian free will. You choose to accept Jesus and then based upon your free libertarian choice, then God makes you alive in response to what you first did in choosing him. Now, Paul will not allow that language in here. He says, when we were dead in our sins, God made us alive. Nowhere in the text does the sinner confess the need to be made alive. I've heard provisionists and others say, well, Just because you're spiritually dead doesn't mean that you can't confess your need to be made alive. Lord, make me alive. You can confess that need to be made alive. Or you can assent to the gospel appeal and then be made alive. There's nowhere in the text that gives us permission to do that. The the descriptions in verses 1 through 3 are overwhelming to show total inability and the dire need to be made alive. So in verse 4, there is a but God. It's a very strong adversative in the original language. 
In other words, Paul says, listen, I'm making a major transition here from what you were to what God has done. I'm going to explain this transformation that has happened. I'm going to, I'm going to explain grace. And so Paul now introduces us to our new position in Christ. From what we were to what God has done. And there are three very distinct actions that God has done on our behalf. These are the main verbs in this very long paragraph. And, and really, they focus on God's activity. Now, exegetically, grammatically, there's nothing in this text that we do yet positively until we get down to verse 8, by faith, you've been saved. But the main verbs in the passage, which you want to look at, the main verbs, are all actions done by God himself. God is the main actor. God is doing these things. What has God done? Well, God made us alive with Christ. We didn't make ourselves alive. We didn't ask to be made alive. We didn't confess our need to be made alive. We didn't assent with the possibility that we could be made alive. Paul emphatically says God made us alive even when we were dead. He, he focuses back on that deadness twice in that passage of Scripture. He, he draws back to that deadness that because we were spiritually dead, we could not make ourselves alive. God had to do that. And then second, God raised us up with Christ. And then third, God seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. So God has exerted his power in our lives by doing a miraculous resurrection, this transformation, this sovereign power of, of taking those who were spiritually dead, enslaved to the world, enslaved to Satan, enslaved to the flesh, those that were by nature children of wrath, and he has sovereignly raised us to new life and given us this new position in Christ. We were made alive. We were raised to new life. We've been seated. And interestingly, this mirrors Christ. Christ was dead in the grave. Christ rose again. And Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father. And so when we were spiritually dead, Christ raised us with him, made us alive, just like his resurrection. He has raised us with him, and he has seated us with him, just like Christ is seated at the right hand of of the Father in heaven. So this being made alive is a sovereign work of God. Nowhere in the text does it say that you assent or you agree with or you confess your need to be made alive. Paul is very clear with his language that you were these five things, but now God had to made you alive when you were spiritually dead. You don't make yourself alive. You don't somehow confess your need to be made alive. You don't believe in order to be made alive. God makes you alive. And that's, that's the definition of grace. This is none other than regeneration. It's the new heart of flesh that Ezekiel talks about. It's being born again that Jesus talks about. It's being a new creation in Christ that 2 Corinthians 5.17 talks about. And so, grace. He says there that even when we were dead in our sins, this is verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us together alive with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Now notice how Paul ties grace right there in that passage to being made alive. So you would ask Paul, Paul, what is grace? Grace is being made alive in Christ. Grace is something God sovereignly, actively, powerfully does in and to you. What is grace? In that passage of Scripture, Paul defines grace, verse 5, as being made alive. 
So is grace a mere offer that God gives to people as an option that they can choose to accept or reject? Grace is an offer. I'm going to offer you grace. I'm going to offer you the possibility of being made alive, but you've got to choose whether you're going to receive the gift and thus be made alive. Or is grace something that God sovereignly bestows to those who in no way can make themselves alive or do anything positively for Christ? Now, what is grace? Well, you'd say, well, grace is unmerited favor. Grace is undeserved favor. It's it's God's gift to, to sinners who are undeserving. Well, that's somewhat accurate, but it's not quite all the way true. If grace is given to undeserving sinners, that means that we don't deserve anything. It makes us sound like we're neutral. Unmerited or undeserved means that we really don't deserve anything, and God gives us what we don't deserve. But what do we deserve? It's not grace bestowed to undeserving sinners who don't deserve anything. It's grace bestowed to hell-deserving sinners. You see, we deserve hell. We deserve God's wrath because we are by nature children of wrath and dead in our trespasses and sins. And so grace is not just giving us what we don't deserve. Grace is giving us free, sovereign mercy for those who deserve nothing but hell and condemnation. So grace is God's active Sovereign bestowal of being made alive on those who deserve wrath and are spiritually dead. Now, let's get to the real issue in this passage of Scripture that has caused a lot of discussion over the ages. And that's the famous one that we use oftentimes in witnessing or when you're sharing the gospel. It's probably a passage of Scripture you had memorized. Verses 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, here's the big question. What is the it? It is the gift of God. What's the it? What's the gift of God? Is it faith? Is it grace? Is it the entire phrase of being saved? Let me give you the interpretations that are held by some commentators and theologians over the years. Um, John Calvin thought that it referred to not just faith, but the entire package. Grace, faith, probably talking about the whole package of salvation. F.F. Bruce also holds to this. Peter O'Brien, modern Australian commentator, Harold Honer in his big Baker exegetical, A.T. Robertson, uh, the famous Greek scholar, S.M. Baugh, who's written a recent commentary on Ephesians. They all hold to the this being referred to, to all of it. Now, faith is feminine. This is in the neuter. And so, there's an argument that you can't take the this back to the faith because you can't have a neuter going back to a feminine. So what is the this referred to? And so is the gift just faith alone that is the gift or is it the whole package? Well, these guys would say it's the whole package. But I think F.F. Bruce 
gives a great clarification. And F.F. F. Bruce is probably one of the greatest 20th century Greek scholars, New Testament scholars. Listen to what F.F. F. Bruce says in his New Testament or his New International Commentary in the New Testament. He says this, It is probably best understood, and this as referring to salvation as a whole, not excluding the faith by which it is received. So he says it's best understood as the whole package, but it doesn't exclude actually faith as the gift also. Now, there are those that would hold that the this refers specifically to faith, that the gift of God given to sinners is the faith to believe. Not just the salvation, not just the grace, but the this refers specifically back to the faith. So in other words, these would argue that faith is... The others would say, let me just say this, Calvin, Bruce, O'Brien, Honer, Robertson, all of them would say that, yes, faith is a gift. But they would say this passage doesn't explicitly teach that faith is the gift, it's the whole package, including faith. So they wouldn't deny it. They just would say that it really is talking about the whole package, grace, salvation, faith. But there are those that hold that faith is really what Paul is focusing on, that the faith itself is the gift. This is Augustine argued for this. Surprisingly, Chrysostom, which I was surprised to find out argued for this because Chrysostom seemed to be a little bit more on the libertarian free will side, but he believed that faith itself was a gift. Theodore Beza, Calvin's successor, Charles Hodge, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and Hendrickson in his commentary all hold that it refers to faith. So all of these commentators would argue, just theologically, maybe not from the text itself, but they would all argue that the sinner's act of believing comes from God as a gift. Now, obviously, God does not believe for us, but he grants us the ability to believe or have faith as a gift of grace. Now, what's their reasoning for seeing that it has to be just limited to faith? They have some good reasoning. Now, the first reason they would give is that it better fits the context of the passage showing the free nature of salvation. They would say that, you know, Obviously, Paul here is talking about being made alive, and he's already talked about up in verse 5 how by grace you've been saved. And so they're saying that exegetically, logically, the whole issue here is that you have to be made alive. And in order to be made alive, you have to uh, have that spiritual deadness has to be overcome. And so therefore, faith has to be a gift given to you in that being made alive so that you can believe. They would also say the second argument is that... Um, the other interpretation of taking it as the entire package of grace, of salvation, they would say is a tautology. It's saying the same thing over and over again. They would say, yeah, it's obvious that salvation's a gift. That, that's, that's not to be argued. Obviously, salvation's a gift. Obviously, grace is a gift because that's what it means. And so it has to be faith as the gift. Or in other words, it would be repetitive. It would be, uh, Paul would be basically just be repeating himself by saying, yes, obviously salvation's a gift, but he's focusing in here on faith as the gift, not just the entire package. And thirdly, they would say the analogy of faith, or in other words, Scripture interprets Scripture, that other passages of Scripture clearly show that faith is a gift. Namely, Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It's been granted to you to believe. 
It's been given to you as a grace to believe. Now, I've heard provisionists say that when, when Paul says it's been granted for you to believe, that that word granted just means God's given you the opportunity to use your free will to believe. God has given you the possibility. He's just granted you an opportunity. So they, they kind of throw in grant an opportunity to use your libertarian free will to choose to believe. But that's not what the text says. The actual ability to believe, the actual faith, is something that God grants. Not just the opportunity to use your free will, but the actual faith itself, God grants. And then in Colossians 2.12, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Okay, you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. What was the powerful working of God? The faith. The powerful working of God is the faith that God gave you to believe. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses. This is Colossians parallel to what we're looking at here in Ephesians. So the act of believing is a gift given to the elect. Why can't sinners believe on their own without it being a gift? Even if you don't buy that faith is a gift exegetically, contextually, what has Paul's argument been from the very beginning? You're spiritually dead in rebellion. You're enslaved to the world. You're enslaved to Satan. You're enslaved to your flesh. You are by nature a child of wrath. You have to be made spiritually alive. So in order to believe, you have to be made spiritually alive, granted the gift of faith, so that you can positively respond to Christ. We're hopelessly dead and imprisoned in a nature it's under God's wrath. Now, let me give you a couple quotes here in closing. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones would say this, Faith is not the cause of salvation. Christ is the cause of salvation, and I must never speak in such a way as to represent faith as the cause of my salvation. Faith is the instrument through which it comes to me. Now, we say faith alone, Christ alone, grace alone. We're saved by faith. Faith is the instrument by which we apprehend Christ. Faith is not what saves us. Christ is what saves us. And that faith that we have to believe in Jesus is a gift in and of itself to us that we could never produce on our own. Martin Lloyd-Jones would go on to say, It is not our decision, our deciding for Christ, that makes us Christians either. That is our work. Decision does not come into it. But it is not our decision that makes us Christians. It's not our decision. Yes, we have faith in Christ, and we are saved by Christ through that faith, but that faith in and of itself is given to us as a gift because without it, we would never believe on our own. Think about it this way. In your spiritual state of deadness, in your spiritual state of following the course of this world, in your spiritual state of being under the influence of Satan as a son of disobedience, in your spiritual state of following after the flesh, in your spiritual state of being a child of wrath by nature, you would never in a million years trust in Christ. You, you could not produce the faith. You do not have the ability. 
you cannot exercise that faith unless God makes you alive and grants you grace. What's part of that being made alive? What's part of that grace? Granting you even the faith to believe in Jesus. Because without that faith, you would never come to faith in Christ. And that faith has to be given to you as a gift. Now, let me just give you a final quote by Jerome. Jerome, the early church father, the one who did the Latin Vulgate. He says this, Faith itself is also not of our own will, but is the gift of God. It is not that the human will is removed. The very freedom of the will has God as its author, and all things referred to his benefaction, since he himself who permits us even to will the good. But all of this has been said, so that none might glory if he's been saved by himself and not God. It's a very good distinction there. He's saying that faith is a gift of God. It's not that the human will's been removed. It's not like we don't believe, we don't choose, we don't will to come to Christ. It's just that that will that was in bondage has been overcome by sovereign grace in the being made alive, and that Grace is the faith given to us to make us willing to come. Before we were unwilling to come, we were unable to come. Now, through being made alive, we are able to come and we are willing to come and we freely come because it's all a gift of God. And he argues that if it was of ourselves, our own doing, our own faith, our own choosing, then we would have reason to boast. So as you look at this entire passage of Scripture contextually, You understand deadness, you understand these five metaphors, these five descriptions that Paul uses to discuss the unregenerate. You you talk about God's active sovereign work in making us alive, defining grace as being made alive, and you look down there and you realize that faith itself is a gift. And so in this passage of Scripture, you have two key tenets of Reformed theology that are coming through in the text. Not imposed on the text, but coming through in the text. And this is why we believe these truths, is because we see them in the text. We don't, we don't come with a theological system and then try to find proof text for it. We see these taught directly. So what are the two truths? Total inability and irresistible grace or sovereign regeneration. Or if you want to say the T in the tulip and the I in the tulip. Total depravity slash inability and Sovereign regeneration slash irresistible grace or effectual calling, whatever word you want to use. And so hopefully this has been helpful for you to see the distinctions made between the reform view and the non-reform view over the issues of deadness, over the issues of grace, over the nature of what faith is, and looking at Paul's overall argument in this passage of Scripture based upon his descriptions, the grammar, the exegesis, taking his flow of thought from first to last and understanding how Paul defines the nature of saving faith um, through the grace that God gives to sinners. Well, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I appreciate you listening and being a faithful podcast. If you do have questions, you can please go to seancole.net and submit those, or you can catch me on Facebook. Uh, We'd love to interact with you. I pray that you're going to have a great summer as the summer starts. Um, I'm going to have a little bit more time here as the summer hits to come in and record some more standalone podcasts. But um, until next time, would we all keep our eyes fixed on Jesus?